0: This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: And somebody handed me a helmet and a riot stick and, and said, come on, we're going to the yard and get this thing back under control. And I can remember running down the stairs here thinking, this is really stupid. I could get killed out here, you know. You know, it was one of those feelings that somebody's getting ready to take a shot at you or something. You know, it was just a scary, scary feeling and in fact the inmate that started the fire uh, in the kitchen i could see his hand through the window it was dark at night but i could see his hand it was his left hand he had a piece of paper that was on fire and i could see him hold it out and drop it they never intentionally set the chapel on fire it was the heat from the kitchen but I was sitting on that wrestling mat with the body under my feet, and I was eating that sandwich and drinking this red Kool-Aid when the Ada County detectives came in and said, doesn't this bother you? And I said, I guess
2: not. I know, <laughs> I'm <was> hungry.
3: <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to Behind Gray Walls Disturbing Justice. My name is Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky down in Texas.
0: Uh, I'm always down in Texas. <laughs> I feel like these days. Howdy, y'all.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, should we get started with this riot? Let's do it. First off, we're going to 1958. And the sources for today's episode are the Idaho Daily Statesman, Ancestry.com, Inmate Files from the Idaho State Archives, the U.S.-U.K. Mutual Defense Agreement, Washington, 3rd of July, 1958, from CVCE, Bruce Rydell, Beirut, 1958, America's Origin Story in the Middle East from Brookings.edu, The Making of the Limited Test Ban Treaty, 1958-1963 from National Security Archive, Variety, January 1943 through Archive.org, IMDB for Hellsapoppin' and Feature film released between 1941, January 1st, and 1941, December 31st. michigancriminallawyer.com Wikipedia, The United States in 1958 1958 US-UK Mutual Defense Agreement Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Space Race NASA NACA Harvey Fletcher Pioneer 1 Explorer 1 Explorer 3 Vanguard One, International Geophysical Year, William Bora, Alaska Statehood Act, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Poppin the film, Chick Johnson, and 16mm film.
0: So we've got some clear themes going on if you know anything about Pioneer 1, Explorer 1, etc. So here we are back again just six years after our last riot. The United States is still in the midst of the post-war boom, though the prosperity is starting to slow. 1958 marked one of the first years of the decline of the post-World War II baby boom as an 11-year birth decline begins. Still, suburbs continued to grow around the country, and consumerism was solidified as a key component of Western society. New technological household appliances, such as vacuums, refrigerators, and even televisions, made life easier for homemakers and made the home and family a central part of the American society.
3: By 1958, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were 11 years into the Cold War, which would last for another 40 years. Like we saw in 1952, the two nations, each essentially claiming an eastern bloc and a western bloc of countries, engaged in a nuclear arms race, each attempting to have a large enough arsenal to wipe the other nation off the map if needed. Several successful and unsuccessful and dangerous nuclear tests were held across the world. On February 5, 1958, for example, a hydrogen bomb called the Tybee bomb was lost in waters off the coast of Savannah, Georgia. Presumably, a major live hydrogen bomb has been sitting on the ocean floor for 62 years. Winning the Cold War, however, would take strategic maneuvers with strategic allies. On July 3, 1958, the United States signed the U.S.-U.K. Mutual Defense Agreement with the United Kingdom. This was a nuclear cooperation agreement which focused particularly on exchange of classified information concerning the use and production of nuclear weapons between the two nations. However, the United States was certainly the bigger and more powerful of the nations, both militarily and economically. Britain soon became dependent on the United States for its nuclear weapons.
0: More so than a nuclear arms race, the Cold War for the United States was about saving vulnerable nations from the corrupting communist influence of the Soviet Union. And actually, as well as like China, sort of those were the two main communist countries. In 1958, the main country in question under Soviet threat was Lebanon. A year earlier, in 1957, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, who we saw elected in our 1952 episode, quote, enunciated what became known as the Eisenhower Doctrine, the first statement by a president stating that America has vital interests in the Middle East and would defend them by force if necessary, unquote.
2: There are worldwide hopes which we can reasonably entertain. And there are worldwide responsibilities which we must carry to make certain that freedom, including our own, may be secure. There is, however, a special situation in the Middle East, which I feel I should, even now, lay before this body. Before doing so, it is well to remind ourselves that our basic national objective in international affairs remains peace, a world peace based on justice. Such a peace must include all areas, all peoples of the world, if it is to be endured. There is no nation, great or small, with which we would refuse to negotiate in mutual good faith, with patience, and in the determination to secure a better understanding between us. Out of such understandings must, and eventually will, grow confidence and trust, indispensable ingredients to a program of peace and to plans for lifting from us all the burdens of these expensive armaments. To promote these objectives, our government works tirelessly, day by day, month by month, year by year. But until a degree of success crowns our efforts that will ensure that to all nations peaceful existence, we must, in the universe of peace itself, remain vigilant, alert, and strong. The Middle East has abruptly reached a new and critical stage in its long and important history. In past decades, many of the countries in that area were not fully self-governing. Other nations exercised considerable authority in the area, and the security of the region was largely built around their power. But since the First World War, there has been a steady evolution towards self-government and independence this development, the United States has welcomed and has encouraged. Our country supports without reservation the full sovereignty and independence of each and every nation in the Middle East. (laughs) Now, the evolution toward independence has, in the main, been a peaceful process, but the area has been often troubled. Persistent cross-currents of distrust and fear, with raids back and forth across national boundaries, have brought about a high degree of instability in much of the Mideast. Just recently, there have been hostilities involving Western nations that once exercised much influence in the area. Also, the relatively large attack by Israel in October has intensified the basic differences between that nation and its Arab neighbors all this instability has been heightened and at times manipulated by international communism russia's rulers have long sought to dominate the middle east this was true of the czars it is true of the bolsheviks the reasons are not hard to find now these reasons do not affect russia's security for no one plans to use the middle east as a base for aggression against russia Never for a moment has the United States entertained such a thought. The Soviet Union has nothing whatsoever to fear from the United States in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world, so long as its rulers do not themselves first resort to aggression.
0: Eisenhower looked toward the Middle East, what he called the, quote, Arab world, with trepidation, especially worried about the rising political power of Egypt's young president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, and the Arab nationalist movement. Lebanon was in the midst of a civil war between its Christian and Muslim communities, and so, with power in Lebanon hanging in the balance, Eisenhower declared that the U.S. must defend Lebanon. If they didn't, the power struggle in the country would lead to a dictatorship, which would surely lead to another world war.
3: On July 15, 1958, 1,700 U.S. Marines stormed the beaches of Beirut with Eisenhower claiming that the Lebanese president, Camille Namir Chamoun, had requested military intervention to stop, quote, civil strife actively, fermented by Soviet and Cairo broadcasts, end quote. What they stormed, however, was an average beach. Sunbathers went scrambling for cover while vendors and teenage boys arrived on the scene to sell wares and gawk at the soldiers. This landing, however, according to Bruce Rydell, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, quoted earlier, was deadly serious. It was America's first ever combat operation in the Middle East. The Lebanese army saw the invasion as a threat to Lebanese sovereignty, while the American command was ready to deploy nuclear weapons should it become necessary. The U.S. withdrew the forces on October 25, 1958, but the event marked, quote, the beginning of decades of seemingly endless American combat missions in the Middle East. In retrospect, Beirut in 1958 was a decisive turning point, end quote.
0: Constantly in tension without carrying out full-scale war was stressful and exhausting for both governments and citizens of the major Cold War nations. Between 1953 and 1958, the USSR the U.S. and the U.K. together held a total of 231 nuclear atmospheric tests, which increased global apprehension over atomic weapons. Adlai Stevenson, the losing Democratic presidential candidate in 1952 and 1956, strongly favored banning nuclear testing altogether. The Soviet Union was the first to declare a moratorium, deciding to halt nuclear testing as long as the other nations did on March 31, 1958. Eisenhower himself wanted to halt testing, but his administration was divided. However, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles realized that putting a moratorium on nuclear testing would improve the United States image. After research with a conference of experts in Geneva, Switzerland, on August 22, 1958, Eisenhower announced that the U.S. would join the USSR on the moratorium, which the U.K. joined as well. The moratorium, also known as the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, would then be extended by both the United States and the Soviet Union through 1961.
3: One Soviet action that truly increased anxieties over nuclear arms in the Cold War was the Soviets sending Sputnik 1, an artificial satellite, into space in October 1957, followed by Sputnik 2 a month later in November. This launched the space race. The race started in 1955 when James C. Haggerty, Eisenhower's press secretary, announced that the U.S. intended to launch small satellites between July 1957 and December 1958 as part of the International Geophysical Year, a period of 18 months of a scientific project of Earth sciences, including in the field of cosmic rays, geomagnetism, meteorology, oceanography, seismology, and solar activity. A month after Haggerty's announcement, the Soviets created a commission whose purpose was to beat the Americans into Earth's atmosphere. The space race would last longer than a decade, culminating in the U.S.'s moon landing in 1969.
0: In response to Sputnik 1 and 2, the United States launched their own artificial satellite, Explorer 1, in February 1958 from the Cape Canaveral Missile Annex in Florida. The batteries for returning data ran out after four months, but it remained in orbit until 1970. It was the first of the Explorer series, 90 scientific spacecrafts in total. By March 1958, the U.S. launched Vanguard 1 and Explorer 3. The last contact with Vanguard 1 was in May 1964, but it has a 240-year orbital lifetime, meaning it won't decay or fall out of, and decay means, like, fall out of range of Earth's orbit until 2198, which is an unfathomable year (laughs) it's so so crazy Explorer 3 decayed from orbit only months after launch in june 1958
3: on the same day that james haggerty announced the u.s's satellite intentions he also announced the creation of the national aeronautics and space administration nasa NASA was the successor of the National Advisory Committee of Aeronautics, created in 1915 with the intention of studying and creating aviation advancements, especially during wartimes, meaning it was often led by military and government employees. NASA, unlike NACA, was to have a distinctly civilian orientation, encouraging peaceful application in space science. Upon its inception, NASA incorporated elements of the Army Ballistic Missile Agenda and the United States Naval Research Academy— As well as inherited 8,000 NACA employees, an annual budget of 100 million, three major research labs, and two small test facilities. As we all know, NASA remains a crucial part of space exploration well into the 21st century. As of 2020, the organization has 17,373 employees and an annual budget of 22.629 billion, a far cry from its humble beginnings. (laughs)
0: After the Soviet Sputnik and the U.S.'s slow response, an AP article from Salt Lake City published in the Idaho Daily Statesman read, quote, A noted scientist who pioneered electronics and missile development predicted Monday, Russia will win the space race. Dr. Harvey Fletcher said it looks like the United States will lose because Americans are not willing to sacrifice. It is unclear. I know. It is unclear what Dr. (laughs) Fletcher was expecting Americans to sacrifice. Fletcher was a physicist born in Provo, Utah, who taught electrical engineering at Columbia University until 1952 and ended his career as the first dean of Brigham Young University's College of Physics and Engineering Sciences until 1958. Though he appeared to play very little role in the space race himself, Utah clearly took pride in their homegrown scientist. Apprehensions of the U.S. losing the space race continued through most of 1958. In an AP article from Washington on April 28, 1958, quote, Dr. Hugh L. Dryan, director of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, and this this whole article was actually about three months before NASA was announced, um, so it's he's working for NACA. He said Sunday, The Russians are ahead of the United States in the space race, and the whole country is to blame. We did not take this matter seriously, Dryden said. Before Sputnik, if you mentioned the word space, your appropriations would be cut for wasting a people's money on foolish things. This is no longer true, although I must point out that the money has not yet been appropriated. Unquote.
3: Such clear anxieties were not assuaged until the United States made its first major launch under NASA on October 11, 1958. Pioneer 1. Pioneer 1 was a space probe intended to orbit the moon and make scientific measurements. Even when Pioneer 1 launched, however, the relief Americans felt may have been short lived. A guidance error failed to achieve lunar orbit, and the probe was destroyed upon re entry into Earth's atmosphere after only 43 hours in space. The Air Force, however, refused to take Pioneer 1 as a total loss. In an AP article from Inglewood, California, the Air Force claimed four firsts for the Pioneer moon probe. One, it marked the first time a man-made vehicle had reached an altitude of 79,120 miles above the Earth's surface. Two, it marked the first time man has been able to measure radiation above 25,000 statute miles. Three, Pioneer's speed was the fastest ever achieved by a man-made vehicle, 34,400 feet per second, or 23,450 miles per hour. And four, the first direct measurements of the Earth's magnetic field at altitudes ranging up to 79,120 miles. There were a number of other failed launches throughout 1958, both before the creation of NASA and after it. During the International Geophysical Year between July 1st, 1957 and December 31, 1958, the United States attempted seven launches of various rockets and satellites, with three of them succeeding.
0: In another connection with Russia, as if the Cold War and the space race weren't enough, the United States formally declared statehood for a former Russian colonial holding. On July 7, 1958, President Eisenhower signed the Alaska Statehood Act into law. Having been a United States district and territory since its purchase from Russia in 1867, Alaska struggled to get congressional traction behind statehood since the 1920s. Up through the 1950s, both Republicans and Democrats opposed adding Alaska as a state. Republicans were afraid that its small population would prevent the state from collecting enough taxes and it would end up as a welfare state, while Democrats feared more pro-civil rights congressmen. Several politicians, including some Alaskans themselves, opposed Alaska's statehood. One politician who was staunchly for the statehood? Frank Church, who at the time was a brand-new U.S. senator from Idaho, but who would go on to have an important career in U.S. foreign affairs. It was not until January 1958 that the act had enough political backing for Eisenhower to consider it. The act finally passed the Senate by a vote of 64 to 20. This 1958 act made it possible for Alaska's admission into the Union on January 13, 1959.
3: But if the space race and adding a new state was affecting scientists and government officials in the United States, it likely didn't have much of an effect on most Idahoans, save, of course, Frank Church. There's something more pressing in the capital city. As early as 1956, a new high school was planned to be built on the Boise bench. That same year, the Council of Parents and Teachers sponsored a contest to name the two high schools, the one planning to be built and the one already existing in downtown Boise. The winners of the contest would receive $100 saving bonds from the council.
0: On November 26, 1956, the Idaho Daily Statesman announced the winners a 13 year old boy named Gary Wensky and Mrs. Harold Klett. Gary submitted the name Bora for the new high school, and Mrs. Klett submitted the name Capital for the existing school. According to the newspaper article, several people suggested both Bora and Capital for the two schools, but Gary's and Mrs. Klutz were postmarked the earliest. In fact, Gary supposedly sent both names in himself. Quote, the youngster may have won out both selections except for the fact that the school board, which made the final decision Monday, voted 3-2 to two in favor of spelling it as Capital with an O rather than Capital with an A. Though there is a Capital High School in Boise, it was not built until 1964. Boise High School remained Boise High School.
3: Borah, of course, was named after Idaho Senator William Borah. Though he was born in Illinois, he settled in Boise, Idaho, after deciding to move west. He boarded a train in Omaha, Nebraska, and stopped in Boise because it was, quote, as far west as his pocketbook would take him, end quote. A young lawyer, he quickly rose to prominence in Boise courts, even marrying the governor's daughter. He ran for Senate in 1907, winning a Republican seat to represent Idaho, In 1924, he was elected chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. And in 1933, he became dean of the United States Senate. He died as a senator in 1940.
0: Once the name of the high school was chosen and the school was preparing to open, the next step was to pick the nickname or mascot. On March 5, 1958, the sports section of the Idaho Daily Statesman speculated what possible nicknames could be given to the Bora High School sports teams. Quote, Officials say the tag won't be applied until the students themselves vote upon it, so chances it won't be known until sometime next fall. Most popular of the names now being discussed seems to be the Senators, since the school is named after Idaho's most famous senator, unquote.
3: Bora's first student body started at school on September 2, 1958. Three weeks later, the students voted on a new mascot for the sports teams, the Lions. From a Statesman article on September 23, 1958, quote, Principal Lauren Hicks said Lions won by a wide margin over five others, which included Senators, the unofficial name which Bora's football squad had been playing during early games. The Lions tag was thought by officials to have received popular support because of its connection with the famed Idaho Senator William E. Borah, who was called the Lion of Idaho during his long tenure in the United States Senate, end quote. To this day, Sky's mom's alma mater remains the Bora Lions, and I was actually the 50th class at Bora in 2008, and so my photo is on the wall there next to the 1958 classes photos, which is kind of fun.
0: Well, (laughs) look at you. Go, go, Lions.
3: Go, Lions. Woo!
0: Another founding related to Idaho history. In 1958, American pop rock band Paul Revere and the Raiders was founded in Boise. Paul Revere Dick, the founder, owned several restaurants in Caldwell, Idaho, and one day met singer Mark Lindsay when picking up hamburger buns from the bakery where Mark worked. Lindsay joined Revere's band, originally called the Downbeats, in 1958. They changed their name to Paul Revere and the Raiders two years later in 1960 after moving to Portland, Oregon to pursue their musical career. The band achieved their greatest popularity in the late 1960s and early 1970s with a handful of hits. In 2019, three Paul Revere and the Raiders songs appeared on the soundtrack for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by Quentin Tarantino, introducing the Boise-based band to a whole new demographic of listeners.
3: Yeah, so cool. Now, prison demographics. Let's get to the Idaho State Penitentiary. Inmates in the 1960s likely heard Paul Revere and the Raiders on the radios that they had available to them in... For house In 1958, however, convicts of the Idaho State Penitentiary were probably listening to a different soundtrack while they were working at the prison. There's no shortage of work at the prison either. Most of the vocational programs that existed in 1952 still existed in 1958. Auto repair shop, machine shop, printing and multigraphing shops, the license plate factory, and just general construction. But several were added, including the upholstery and furniture shop, the typewriter repair shop, the greenhouse, and the sign shop. Inmates could also work at the Clock Magazine office, an inmate-made publication written, edited, and published by the inmates themselves. According to the Biennial Report of 1957 and 1958, inmates assigned to the Clock office, quote, "...are interested in newspaper work and are encouraged along this line. They have the opportunity to study advertising methods, selling, and marketing of publishable material." end quote. With this statement, you can see how much focus is put on the rehabilitation of inmates, teaching them skills that they would be able to use once they got out of prison.
0: As we discussed in the episode about 1952, the license plate factory was an important workplace for the inmates, where they had, quote, a chance to acquaint themselves with factory work of a similar nature, whereby they may be able to secure employment in the future, unquote. Inmates did, and still to this day, make the license plates for automobiles in the state of Idaho. The new sign shop expanded that role, meaning that inmates also made, quote, several types of highway and street signs for the state of Idaho, and damage signs are repaired whenever their damage condition makes it feasible, unquote. Inmates in IDOC still make street signs for the state of Idaho. In 1958, according to the biennial report, inmates made 2,866 new street and road signs and reconditioned and repaired 2,910 signs.
3: The prison still also retained the education program. Middle and high school courses were offered to any inmate who needed schooling and was willing to put in the work for it. Inmates could even earn their high school diploma, awarded by their home school, upon receipt of transcript of grades. Though inmates who went to school did not have to work, the prison's educational advisor, Arthur M. Hayes, stated, quote, While it is essential that all men be employed, school is not a make-work fallacy. It is constructive. It is creative. It is an economic and social asset to the state of Idaho and to society in general. Society already has an investment in every man who enters here, and a greater investment by the time he is released to the outside. The greater his advancement here, the surer are the returns on the investment later. This is why our authorities have established and maintained the school." Working was not everything for the inmates who hoped to make themselves better while incarcerated.
0: But inmate work made the prison's functioning possible. One of the most important things that inmate labor provided was food, both from the prison farm out at Eagle Island as well as from the greenhouse. The greenhouse was a 33-by-40-foot building with four growing beds, each bed roughly 6 feet by 30 feet by 3 feet In those beds, they grew flowers and produce for use at Eagle Island. In one year, the greenhouse produced 4,000 tomatoes, 4,000 cabbage, and 2,000 bell peppers. The greenhouse area also included a nursery, a tree area, an evergreen area, and a shrub area, where dozens of different varieties were grown from Russian olive trees to weeping willows to German ivy to honeysuckle and several species in between.
3: And of course, with so many acres to be farmed at Eagle Island, the prison farm was massively productive. Between June thirtieth, nineteen fifty six, and June thirtieth, nineteen fifty eight, one hundred forty three dairy cows produced one million four hundred seventy thousand two hundred seventy five pounds of milk and butter, while the farm hens laid sixty three thousand five hundred ninety three dozen eggs, one hundred forty nine thousand four hundred twenty five pounds of beef, were consumed by the prison population, as well as 2,511 chickens and 833 turkeys. Inmates at the farm fattened and slaughtered 514 hawks, both for institutional use, as well as for other meat products, such as sausage and lunch meat.
0: Also, can I just say, the amount of numbers and statistics that were in this particular biennial report is insane, I mean, as you can tell. This area that talked about the produce, I just, I almost didn't even know where to begin because there were so many <laughs> things that were noted down. So these inmates are really working hard and, and really producing, which is really neat. Mm-hmm. So to continue, the farm produced 12,000 bushels of grain, 700 tons of hay, and 400 tons of silage or pickled grass used for livestock during the cold season. True to Idaho tradition, the prison population consumed 483,650 pounds of potatoes. To give, you an, <laughs> to give you an idea of the scope of that number, that many potatoes would make nearly 39 million French fries. <laughs> which is a very important st- statistic in my mind. The prison population, which combined over the two years likely made up around 2,000 men for three meals a day, consumed insane amounts of produce. Here are just a few numbers. 52 tons of cabbage,
3: 18 tons of carrots,
0: 65 tons of onions,
3: 875 crates of raspberries,
0: 200 bushels of apples,
3: 8 tons of green beans,
0: 21 tons of tomatoes, and
3: 40 tons of watermelon. With so much produce, inmates working at the cannery had their hands full as well as their stomachs. Between 1957 and 1958, the prison produced 49,935 number 10 big cans of produce, such as apricots, apples pears, raspberries, beets, beans, tomatoes, and pumpkin. I'm getting hungry, Sky. Right? In that same time frame, they also canned 29,023, number two, the smaller cans, of cherries, strawberries, honey, corn, and peas. The prison population only consumed 27,192 of the 78,958 total cans, meaning that the prison provided well for other state institutions, not just their own.
0: The prison was likely so productive and consumed so much because by the end of 1958, they were as near to capacity as they could possibly be. The biennial report states that 712 inmates were received at the penitentiary between June 1957 and June 1958. But because of inmates leaving on parole or final releases, in June 1958, the population of the prison was 587, a dangerously high number considering the prison could only hold 650. This number will play an important part of the of the riot
3: of the 712 inmates who entered 698 were men and 14 were women with 654 of them being white 17 were black 34 were red or native american and seven were listed as mexican 496 of them were between the ages of 21 and 40 with 158 the largest age cohort aged 21 to 25 which has been a similar pattern to what we've seen in previous years 69 inmates fell in the 16 to 20 age category, and three combined inmates made up the age category of 66 to 70, 71 to 75, and 80 to 82. Again, given the youth of the prison, 335 inmates received an 8th grade education or less, two claiming no education at all, with an additional 338 having moved past 8th grade into some high school. 95 inmates stopped after high school graduation. Eight inmates quit college during their first year, ten made it through their freshman year in college, three quit during sophomore year, and nine completed it. Only one inmate finished their 16th year of school, or in other words, graduated from college. One inmate had even completed a postgraduate year of school.
0: As we've seen in demographics from previous years, with the majority of inmates receiving a high school education or less, a majority of occupations listed by inmates in 1958 were mostly labor-intensive, what we would consider blue-collar. In fact, of the 82 occupations listed in the biennial report, only about 14 are what we might consider white-collar, including accountant and bookkeeping. As we've seen before, the most common occupations are common labor.
3: 125
0: farm laborer
3: 103
0: truck driver
3: 61
0: cook and heavy
3: equipment operator 26
0: some of the more unique occupations included racehorse trainer poultry dresser which is someone who slaughters and dresses foul in preparation for marketing which is a really interesting job it sounds weird um <laughs> rodeo contestant and jockey
3: of whom the prison apparently had three i feel like a poultry dresser that's like thanksgiving every day almost right and like
0: (laughs) what are how many like pieces of poultry are you marketing like who are you working for that this is like your full-time job
3: (laughs) for a split second i was picturing like a turkey wearing a little cardigan like (laughs) doing little things you know that's that's a great (laughs) image i
0: like to think that that's what it is too He's like, it's like the, the frog with the, with the hat, like, hello, my baby. Hello, my honey.
3: <laughs> inmates came from 42 of the still 48 states, claiming nativity from every state except the eastern states of Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, Maryland, New Hampshire, and Vermont. The top states represented besides Idaho with 211 inmates were Washington. 46. Texas.
0: 33.
3: Utah and Oregon.
0: 26 each. Missouri. 25.
3: And Oklahoma. 24. Only five countries besides the United States were represented, with three inmates from Canada and one inmate each from England, Germany, Hungary, and Mexico. 206 inmates previously spent time in their youth at various industrial schools, rehabilitation centers, and reformatories throughout the country, while several inmates spent 589 previous sentences at other prisons. Whether state institutions or federal penitentiaries, 377 inmates in 1958, however, were serving their first conviction. 166 were serving their second, and one inmate was serving his eleventh.
0: Where the inmates were not as diverse is when it came to religion. Only six of the listed 33 religions were not some form of Christianity. Of those, they were listed atheist, five, agnostic, one. Jewish, 2, Muslim, 1, quote, old Indian religious beliefs, unquote, 2, and no choice,
3: 42.
0: Catholics made up the largest part of the prison population with 126, followed closely by the LDS and Protestants at 119 each. The prison population also had three Christian scientists, two Quakers, two Jehovah's Witnesses, two Greek Orthodox, and one Josephite, a Catholic mission society of priests and brothers dedicated to ministering specifically to African American men.
3: 39 of Idaho's 44 counties were represented. The most convictions came from Ada County, with 111 inmates arrested in that jurisdiction, followed by Twin Falls County with 87 and Canyon County with 63. Clark County in central eastern Idaho had just one conviction, while Adams, Boundary, and Butte counties had two each. 187 inmates had resided in Idaho for less than one year, many of them transient or just passing through. 227 inmates had lived in Idaho for 20 years or more, with 80 inmates having spent over 30 years, likely for many of them their entire lives in the state.
0: Some inmates would probably spend more time in Idaho than they ever had before once they were arrested. 209 inmates were sentenced to 5 years, 184 were sentenced to 14 years, 68 were in for 15 years, and 65 for 2 years. In total, there were 5 indeterminate sentences, 4 stipulated by, quote, not to exceed the maximum by law, and 1 stipulated by, quote, to be set by the Board of Correction, unquote. There were also 11 life sentences and one death sentence, more than likely Raymond Snowden, who was executed in Five House on October 18, 1957, and was the last man to be executed at the old Idaho penitentiary site. The majority of the sentences ranged from one year to 32 years four inmates were serving concurrent sentences, meaning they were serving two sentences at the same time in which their longest one determined their time in prison. So for example, one was in for 15 years and two 14-year sentences, but as they were serving them concurrently, he would just serve essentially for the 15-year sentence. There was another in for 15 years and 14 years, One who was serving for 20 years, 14 years, and 10 years concurrently, and the last one for 30 years and 5 years.
3: Noting that for yet another year, a 14-year sentence is one of the most common sentences, and therefore it comes as no surprise that 325 inmates were arrested and convicted on the charge of forgery.
0: 173.
3: And issuing a check without funds.
0: 153.
3: Far and away the most common crimes. The next most common, burglary in the first degree, had 84 fewer convictions than issuing a check without funds, a measly 69 inmates. 45 inmates had been convicted of grand larceny, another historically common crime. Several inmates were also resentenced on escape, whether escape from jail, eight, escape from penitentiary, one. escape and persistent violator, one. and escaped of one charge with a felony. Four. Escape from the penitentiary had not previously been a separate charge until the early 1950s. Usually, time was added to their first sentence instead.
0: New crimes that appeared in the 1958 biennial report that had not appeared in previous reports included crimes that are common today. Unlawful possession of narcotics. Two. Perjury. One. Negligent homicide. One. And non-support of children.
3: Fourteen.
0: Drunk driving, which made its first appearance on the podcast during the episode of the 1952 riot, entrapped 12 men. The list also included two crimes that were crimes in the 1950s but are no longer crimes, infamous crime against nature and sodomy, as far as it often meant men having sex with other men, though it is important to note that some charges of sodomy apply to other sexual crimes. It will come as a surprise to very few people that homosexuality was deeply frowned upon in the 1950s. Take, for instance, this editorial from the Idaho Daily Statesman from January 1st, 1956. And so this is just a note. This is actually taken from a three column long letter from the editor that really shows how much vitriol some of those in the state had for LGBTQ and other sort of unusual members of society. And this Uh, report also talks briefly about human sexuality. And so listener discretion is advised. So quote, The Kinsey Report was quoted at Boise as an authority on sex behavior. It not only contends that we are too ignorant and prudish to understand the normal behavior of rapists and homos, but it goes further and says that the molester of children may provide an opportunity for females to learn to adjust emotionally to various types of males. The godless bunch of today preach that morality must be set aside, that it is only a handicap which keeps us from a better way of life. They preach and teach in our schools that we have outlived our codes and morals on sex behavior. Promiscuous sodomy is proclaimed as the deity of the new social order and actually I cut out a lot of mentions of essentially like these rapists and homos are teaching in our schools and uh, it's it's not um, a pleasant thing to read. Many of the men arrested on charges of infamous crimes against nature were not deviants or godless or a, quote, molester of children, unquote. They were arrested and spent time in jail for being who they were.
3: There were some unique crimes in the 1957 and 1958 biennial as well. One inmate was serving a sentence for bombing a building and assault to murder, while another, likely his accomplice, was charged with bombing a building and assisting with assault to murder and burning insured property. Interestingly... One inmate was being kept in the prison for charged with a felony, though it is unclear why this was his charge instead of naming the actual felony. And another, again perhaps his accomplice, was in for accessory to a felony. Of course, all of the usual crimes such as assault with a deadly weapon, 10, embezzlement,
0: 13,
3: murder in the first degree, 5, Murder in the second degree, seven, and rape, six, were very present among the sixty-three total different crimes for which inmates were incarcerated.
0: Whew! Well, this—Are you tired of numbers yet, Anthony?
3: Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
0: So then, let's talk. Let's talk about some context, some prison conditions. So, leading up to September nineteen fifty-eight, conditions were ripe for discontent. As numbers of prisoners continue to rise, on August 31st, a reader of the Idaho Daily Statesman wrote to suggest that, quote, Idaho needs a radical change in its law on bad checks. Commenting that the inmate load at the state penitentiary is at an all-time high and growing steadily, the contention is made that the prison population would not be out of hand or beyond the capacity of the institution if the bad check offenders were sentenced to serve their terms in county jails, unquote. Given that in 1958, 325 offenders were incarcerated for check related crimes or nearly half of the 712 receptions between 1957 and 1958, quote, the idea seems to merit consideration, unquote.
3: Only days later, according to the Statesman, quote, Warden L.E. Clapp declared Tuesday that the Idaho State Prison, from a standpoint of the number of inmates, is moving into an emergency situation. The prison population Tuesday has reached a new all-time high of 602, and Clapp noted that the institution's capacity is 650 at the present time. It could well attain the latter figure by next spring, end quote. Nine days after the first statesman article, the prison received seven new inmates, who, taking into consideration the inmates who left prison for parole or final release, brought the prison total to 600 even. The prison was getting packed. With such a large population with diverse backgrounds and crimes, it seemed only a matter of time before things got out of hand.
0: In order to keep the prison yard and inmates safe, and to keep things between inmates from getting too out of hand too quickly, Warden Lou Clapp and his guards used detention or solitary cells often. Though solitary confinement is often thought of as the only proper punishment for misbehaving inmates, it was not the only form of lockup used by prison officials. Inmates, quote, use the term lockup indiscriminately for both solitary confinement and confinement in the detention ward. Men in the detention ward can talk to each other but can't go into the yard. Perhaps not unreasonably, it is likely that Clapp and his officials viewed lockup or separation as one of the few things that kept the prison yard in order.
3: Inmates were not constantly deprived of amusements. However, twice a month, they, quote, attended picture shows, end quote, in the prison's auditorium, and special movies were shown on holidays. They also had TVs in the women's ward, trustee quarters, and at Eagle Island. Though the biennial report does not include an exact list of movies shown at the biennium, there was one specifically mentioned in a newspaper article published after the rite was over. Hell's a Poppin'
0: Hell's a Poppin' is a 1941 musical comedy based on a 1938 Broadway show starring Ole Olson and Chick Johnson playing themselves, who were also in the production on Broadway. The movie also included Hollywood implants like Martha Ray and Misha Auer, and if these names don't mean anything to you in 2020, blame me because I find this stuff really <laughs> interesting. <laughs> 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 the film features two stage comedians who try to turn their play into a movie. IMDb describes the film this way, quote, Olson and Johnson, a pair of stage comedians, try to turn their play into a movie and bring together a young couple in love while breaking the fourth wall every step of the way, unquote. Wikipedia's entry for the film is a little bit more detailed, quote, Shemp Howard, who's another actor in the film, begins the film as a projectionist of a cinema, displaying on its screen what appears to be the start of a song and dance number, including classily dressed performers walking down a staircase. The staircase collapses, as in a funhouse ride, sliding them all straight to hell where they are tortured by demons. All <laughs> <and> Chick- <laughs> it sounds amazing, to be honest. It does, Ol yeah. <laughs> and Chick arrive in the midst of the mayhem by taxi, and after a bit of funny business, step back to reveal that it's a movie soundstage, unquote. I've never seen this, but now I really want to. The plot was supposed to satirize Hollywood and current filmmaking convention, foreshadowing a style of comedy used by the likes of Mel Brooks. The movie also has what many consider to be the, quote, finest example of swing dancing ever put on film, unquote. Though it was released in the same year as classic films like Citizen Kane and The Maltese Falcon, Hells was nevertheless the 52nd most popular film of the year and had earned $1.7 million
3: About $25 in 2020.
0: At the box office by the end of 1942. This was a respectable number compared to several movies of the era, making it a successful film, though not a blockbuster by any means.
3: And if inmates of the Idaho State Penitentiary wanted some snacks to eat while watching movies like Hell's a-Poppin', all they had to do was spend their hard-earned money at the prison commissary. At the commissary, which resided in the captain's shack on site,
0: currently close to the public,
3: inmates could buy items normally reserved for the outside. Photographs of the commissary show products like Baby Ruth, Mounds, Heath and Hershey chocolate bars, cigarettes, cans of Bugler tobacco, Gillette razorheads, Lifesaver mints, fixed vapor rub, cream of wheat, and even ballpoint pens. According to the biennial report, inmates in 1958 were not paid for their work in the vocational program. Quote, It is considered a privilege for them to be able to work while they are serving their incarceration period. End quote. However, They could earn money for their personal accounts to use at the commissary by selling items they made in the prison hobby shop. Their families could often send them money as well.
0: All right, let's talk about some people. So, as tensions rose and the prison got more and more full, nine inmates decided they wanted to do something about it. David Kobus, Thomas Brophy Jr., Gary Russell Anspaugh, Gerald Wayne Holst, Ronald Davis... George Henry Moore, Stanley James Ross, Donald Carroll Peters, and James Lewis Spain. So let's get to know our guys.
3: First is number 8058 and number 9553, Ronald Clyde Davis. Ronald was born in Castle Rock, Washington on April 15, 1932. After spending some time at the Washington State Training School and working in Nevada, Ronald found himself in Caldwell, Idaho, trying to buy a used 1949 Chevrolet two-door sedan in early August 1950. The salesman convinced Davis to forge a $1,745 check on the Homedale State Bank for the car, who then took the car to Hawthorne, Nevada, where he had a job. Though authorities tried to claim that Ronald had been involved in a similar scheme in Nevada, they also noted that they had had trouble with this particular salesman before, as he had done the same thing previously. Ronald was arrested a few days later and sentenced to 14 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary as number 8058. He was released in August 1951, but returned to the penitentiary in January 1952 for violating his parole. Apparently, he was released a second time, but in December 1956, he robbed a Safeway store in Boise, both violating his parole and incurring a new charge. He entered the penitentiary as number 9553 on December 22nd. 1956, serving 20 years for robbery.
0: The next inmate is number 9863 Gerald Wayne Holst. He was born on January 22nd, 1935, though the birthplace is highly disputed. His first marriage and divorce records from 1955 and 1956 respectively state his birthplace as Pontiac, Michigan, and his social security records list his birthplace as Detroit. However, on his second marriage record from 1957 and upon his intake, he claimed he was born in Queens, New York. It seems most likely, given the information we know of where his parents and siblings are located upon his intake, that he was born in Michigan. Here's a fun fact. His birth father, Floyd Laval, later changed his last name to Prince, which I just thought was interesting. So he was like Floyd Prince. Don't know why, but he just decided that was a thing he wanted to do. (laughs) I don't know why, and I guess I don't know why I thought that was a fun fact, but it seemed fun to me at the time. Gerald claims that he grew up with foster parents Walter and Olga Holst finding out that he was adopted when he was 14 years old starting 2 years later at 16 he began collecting quite a rap sheet mostly in Michigan including a charge called larceny by conversion a Michigan law that is theft by cheating someone out of property or possessions in the early morning of January 13th 1958 Gerald was arrested after robbing the Triangle K tavern in Boise It was learned after his arrest that he had committed several similar crimes around town, including an attempted armed robbery of a Sinclair station on Fairview Avenue. He received a 10-year sentence at the Idaho State Penitentiary.
3: The youngest of the group was number 9924 Thomas Brophy Jr., known as Tommy, who was just 16 years old in 1958. His parents divorced when he was young, and Tommy suffered, quote, long absences from his parents, end quote. At the time of his crime, he lived in Rexburg, Idaho, with his mother, Nellie Mae Hinckley, and his stepfather, Hiram Hinckley, while his father and stepmother lived in Butte, Montana. At 5 p.m. on February 18, 1958, Tommy and a friend, Wilbur Dunn, got their truck stuck in the snow 10 miles north of Rexburg and began walking to get help. When state patrolmen found them, they arrested them for the murder of Tommy's mother. At 12.30 p.m., when Tommy's stepfather, Hiram, came home for lunch, He found Nellie, who had been shot twice by a shotgun and once by a .22 caliber. Next to Nellie's body was a note that read, quote, I am sorry I had to do this. She is against me too, just as the rest of them are. I will kill anyone that tries to hurt me. I have sent my soul to hell, so I have nothing to lose by killing myself or anyone else. Tommy, end quote. When later asked about the crime, he stated that he first wounded his mother with a shotgun and, quote, when she ran screaming into the living room, he killed her by firing a rifle placed against her head. I don't know why, he sobbed. End quote.
0: Wilbur Dunn was quickly released as he testified that he did not know about the shooting until he heard about it on the radio, but Tommy was charged with first-degree murder. Soon after his arrest, Tommy's attorney sent him to State Hospital South for a psychiatric evaluation, hoping to plead innocent by reason of insanity. During his trial, his attorney entered the plea while the prosecutor, quote, would attempt to prove that the boy had a calculated plan in his heart to do away with his mother, unquote. On April 18th, an all-male jury found Tommy guilty of murder in the second degree, and he was sentenced to 32 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. About a week later, a group of women from Idaho Falls, led by Mrs. Jack Whitehead, began raising money to, quote, aid Tommy. By May 14th, they had raised enough money to hire a new attorney who filed an appeal for a new trial based on a, quote, new definition of insanity, unquote. As far as we can tell, this appeal never came to fruition, as Tommy remained in the penitentiary. According to one Idaho Daily Statesman article after he arrived, Tommy wrote poetry as a pastime, but hoped to take architecture classes and receive a high school diploma, only being a sophomore when he committed his crime. He also enjoyed playing softball as well as basketball... But the prison had no basketball team. Quote, Brophy said he feels the 32-year sentence given him was longer than was justified and that more about my past life could have been brought out during his trial, possibly with the result that the verdict might have been different. He did not elaborate, however. Asked how he feels now about the crime, he replied, it was a crime and there's no way of being justified in it. To the question of whether he felt justified in taking his mother's life, he replied, at the time, I imagine I did man yeah
3: next was number 9943 gary russell Anspaugh. gary was born in shoshone county idaho
0: perhaps wallace or murray
3: on december 8th 1933 the son of russell and olive Anspaugh and younger brother to joyce in june 1948 tragedy struck the Anspaugh family when russell gary's father shot and killed olive as she ran from him before turning the gun on himself in a murder suicide gary was just 17 In 1950, perhaps to get away from his family troubles, Gary joined the Marine Corps and appears on U.S. Marine Corps muster rolls through January 1954, achieving the rank of corporal. By April 1954, however, he had been demoted to private first class and discharged after getting arrested on an unknown charge and sent to California Institution for Men in Chino, California. After serving his time in California, he returned to northern Idaho, where he found work as a logger. While working, he often reconnected with former schoolmates. One of those schoolmates was James Brown, with whom Gary, quote, engaged in a long feud while working at logging camps, end quote. On Christmas Day, 1957, Gary entered a tavern in Murray, where James Brown and his musical partner, Vernon G. Stinson, were playing music. Gary requested they play the song In the Middle of an Island, originally by Tennessee Ernie Ford. James refused, saying he would play it, quote, for anybody but Anspa. end quote. Gary then sat in the tavern for a while before leaving and returning with a rifle. When Gary, Brown, and Stinson were all in front of the tavern, Stinson tried reaching for the gun, knocking it out of Gary's hands. Gary picked it up and quickly shot and killed James. 24-year-old Gary Anspaugh was charged with murder in the second degree and sentenced to life in prison.
0: For four of the inmates, we only had basic information based on newspaper articles and from the archive files we pulled. Number 9712, Stanley James Ross, born around 1934, was arrested on July 24, 1957 with his brother Donald and another man, Bobby Schritter, after robbing Bill's drive-in in Rexburg of about $150. Donald's case was dismissed when his attorney proved that he did not participate in the planning or committing of the crime, while Stanley and Bobby pleaded guilty, each receiving five-year sentences. George Henry Moore came in with two numbers before the riot, number 9727 and number 9971, so basically given the resources I had access to while writing the episode, I could not find what his charges were about. Lastly, number 10005, Donald Carroll Peters, and number one zero zero six James Lewis Despain, were likely arrested together in Casha County for grand larceny, each serving 14 years.
3: The leader of the inmates during the riot was number 9325, David Ray Cobus. David was born in San Francisco, California, on March 2, 1934, the only child born to Rafael Cobus and Helen Lewis as his parents separated when he was just nine months old. His mother remarried George V. Baldwin when David was three or four years old, though he and his stepfather, quote, just didn't get along, end quote. David worked odd labor jobs, including salesman, ticket agent, truck driver, and even as a pressure test inspector for bombs. Beginning in 1950, David began piling up criminal activities, including car theft and burglary, before the juvenile court sent him to Alameda County Boys Camp. In 1951, he was arrested for auto theft before being committed to the Preston School of Industry in Ione, California, before then being transferred to Camp Whitmore in Whitmore, California, which was a forestry camp. Within eight months of escaping from Camp Whitmore, he was arrested for first-degree robbery in Oakland after robbing a grocery store with a shotgun with two other youths. In July 1953, he was given a parole from the California Youth Authority. In 1954, he married Ann Math in Minden, Nevada. Ann was pregnant with their first child and living with an aunt and uncle in Oregon upon David's intake.
0: By the end of 1955, David had made his way to Idaho, though the reasons for this are not clear. Here is his crime in his own words. Quote, at about two in the morning, January 9, 1956, at Twin Falls, Idaho, I left a bar where I had spent five or six hours drinking. I went outside and got into my car, and I saw the bartender counting the money taken in that day. When I saw him counting the money, I suddenly decided to rob him. I got out of my car and went back to the bar, which was locked. I knocked on the door, and he opened it and asked me what I wanted. I told him I wanted to take some beer out. I walked into the bar behind him. He went behind the counter to get the beer, and I followed him. I had a monkey wrench in my pocket. I pressed this monkey wrench against his back and told him it was a gun and told him to give me the money. He gave me the money, and I forced him to go outside and get into his own car. I got into his car with him, and I did the driving. I had no idea where I was nor where I was going. I just drove to get out of town. After a while, I stopped the car and told him to get out. We both got out, and I remember we started fighting. I was getting the better of him, and he ran away. I got back into his car, intending to go back and find my own car. I was arrested while I was doing this walking, but I do not know where I was arrested because I do not know where it was, but it was out somewhere in the rural community. I turned over to the police $239, which I took in the holdup, as far as I know." Official records state that David had robbed $283 from Arthur J. Egbert, the bartender.
3: 283 in 1958 is roughly $2,524 in 2020.
0: He described himself as, quote, looped, unquote, during the time of his crime, claiming that he would not have done it if he had been sober.
3: David received a 20-year sentence and entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on January 18, 1956. Nine months later, David petitioned the 3rd District Court for a writ of habeas corpus, quote, claiming that he is being held illegally, end quote. He claimed that the Twin Falls police intimidated him and coerced him into pleading guilty to the crime. He further claimed that, quote, he was not properly advised that the court would have appointed an attorney to defend him if he wished, end quote. From the statesman, quote, his petition prepared by himself says he was under the influence of alcohol and not in control of his faculties at the time of the robbery on January 9th, 1956, end quote. Forced to act as his own attorney, he lost his bid for freedom with 3rd District Court, at which time he stated that he intended to take the case to the United States Supreme Court. After the conviction was upheld by the Idaho State Supreme Court, it took two years for the case to reach the United States Supreme Court, who refused to even review the case. Cobus was now officially in the penitentiary for 20 years. However, because of his constant legal work, he was given the nickname, quote, Legal Cutie. <laughs>
0: It's a very um jarring nickname. You'll hear it in in just a few minutes where it just is like that doesn't match what I imagine.
3: He's not a very like attractive mm. person. Uh yeah. <laughs> Cutie is so it. I think just... it's supposed to be ironic. Yeah. Yeah, it's very ironic. <laughs> okay. <sighs>
0: Uh, In May 1958, Anne sent a divorce decree for David to sign. Though he had no intention of reconciling her once the divorce was through, he wanted to provide for his son, George, who was nearly two years old in May 1958. Quote, he thinks he is required to pay $30 per month child support, but he is not sure. He indicates that if he is able to do so, he will try to pay more than the amount required, that he wants to contribute to the support and welfare of his son, even if he weren't required to do so, unquote. The prison social worker considered David of superior intelligence and was friendly, talkative, and cooperative, perhaps quite charismatic. It makes sense then that on September 18, 1958, David would take the lead role in the riot. This season of Behind Gray Walls, Disturbing Justice, as well as the Disturbing Justice exhibit, were made possible by the Boise City Department of Arts and History and the National Endowment for the Humanities.
3: We'd like to thank them for their generous support. One of
1: them went, went in Capitale, and told them there was a heck of a fight going on in the warping room. And I think it was Capitale and uh, Rachel Terry. That might not be correct, but it seems that was one. Someone else ran into the loafing room expecting to break up the plank and they took them and then they, they started picking off the guards as they came in.
3: On the afternoon of September 18th, inmates were hanging around the yard exercising and loafing in the shade. At around 2.40 p.m., legal cutie David Kobus ran up to the yard office, alerting yard captain Gilbert Talley, also known as Chocolate Slim, after the 1935 riot, that there was, quote, a hell of a fight going on in the loafing room.
0: The loafing room was the same area as the shirt factory mentioned in the 1952 episode.
3: Talley and another guard ran into the room with three prisoners following close behind. When they entered the room, they found no fight. Instead, greeted by six convicts armed with knives ice picks, and pipes. It was an ambush. Other guards had been told about the fight and similarly rushed to the loafing room only to be met by the same sight. In total, nine guards were surrounded and held hostage. Some of the inmates marched the guards to Forehouse while other inmates raided the commissary of all cigarettes and food. We actually have an oral history taken with former guard Jim Howland on July twenty eighth, nineteen ninety two, who was one of the guards taken hostage during this riot.
1: Uh, I was doing run the sick line, so I thought I'd get Ernie to watch the sick line for me, and uh, I just walked in, and looked around, and walked up to him and asked him if he'd run the sick line for me. He said, "Jim, you better turn around and look behind you," and there was, I think, uh, nine or ten inmates lined up, and. Uh, Ended up, we were hostage for two and a half to three hours. Oh, where was this? And then, uh, Well, they put us in uh, Forehouse, in the uh, oh. access area where the plumbing is, and in between the cells and the doorway uh, so windows where you can walk the longer and look in the cells.
0: Once they had the guards hostage in Forehouse, one inmate punched a guard in the stomach, taking the cell block keys. They let one older guard, Dan Chase, leave, quote, because he had a bad heart, unquote but they sent him out with a message. They wanted to see the governor, Robert E. Smiley.
1: I remember they released uh, Dan Chase because he had a heart condition. Oh, did they do that voluntarily? Or? Oh, yes, yes, mm mm-hmm. Yeah, see, you know, Dan is pretty well thought of by the inmates, I remember. He was a uh, straight And What was it like? Were you scared? Well, of course I was scared. <laughs> I think it'd be kind of cool it's fun for a person to uh, uh, appear in a situation like that.
0: Within the hour, a troop of state, county, and city officials moved into the yard, but not Smiley himself. He sent his administrative assistant, Robert Hodge. With a score of people in the yard, David Cobus called out, quote, send one guy up here, just one, unquote. Warden Lou Clapp was out of town at a meeting of peace officers in Pullman, Washington. So, Deputy Warden and Vice Chairman of the State Board of Corrections Mark Maxwell entered Forehouse to begin negotiations with David and the other eight inmates, talking first with David alone.
3: He gave David an ultimatum. Officers would storm the place if prisoners did not give up within 10 minutes. We have an oral history with Mark Maxwell taken on October 2nd, 1981.
4: There was five. I said, I can't talk to all five of you. One of you have to be a spokesman. So they agreed on this guy that was running the thing. He would be a spokesman. I'll come in for ten minutes. And I turned to Verge and Frank O'Neill and I said, now I'm going in for ten minutes, but if I'm not out in ten minutes, you come in and get me. Don't leave me in there more than ten minutes. And I turned to this committee and I said, now I'm coming in for 10 minutes, but if you don't come in, they're coming through the side of this building in 10 minutes. And they said, that's fine. So I went in and talked to them for 10 minutes. They searched me. All I had on me was a a pencil and a scrapbook of paper. And so they started in, and they were bitching about rehabilitation and uh, socks and underwear and the food, and the guards treating them like uh, they were nobody. Uh, this is all on a paper somewhere. So we got everything down. And I said, well, the bunch of you can't do Oh, they didn't want anybody to be punished who was in this thing. And I said, that would have to be a determination on how serious the thing was, and what they did from here on out. I agreed that if they, the committee would come out, they'd have a free hand and talk to the newspaper. And they could, outside of maybe four or five guards, in the room with them, there would be nobody else except those that they wanted to be in there. And when it was nine minutes up, I said, I have 60 seconds to stay here. Uh, During this thing, uh, all the inmates that were in there came up. I was in that first cage there in four, and the rest of them were kind of locked out. But they all came up and started talking, and I I told this guy, I said, "I I can't talk to all of you. We're just killing time. And he told them all to get back and shut up. And by gosh, they all moved back and shut up. So in about nine and a half minutes, ten minutes, they let me out. And I never intended that I would ever get out of there. That right? you didn't
3: oh, think the nine inmates conferred with each other, and David stated that they would give up and release the hostages if they could talk to newspapermen. Maxwell agreed, and five of the nine convicts attended the makeshift press conference with the journalists. They brought to the newsmen a whole host of complaints and demands. However, most of the inmates' complaints came down to one simple statement from David Kobus, quote, We're human beings, not animals. The riot had lasted only a little over an hour, but the inmates hoped for great things to come from it.
0: Of the many complaints the inmates made, the main ones were, quote, that they are locked up too much and that Warden L.E. Clapp exercises too much authority instead of shifting some of it to his subordinates, unquote. According to Clapp, this was a complaint that may be difficult to address, as it would take state legislation to unseat Clapp as chairman of the Board of Corrections. The inmates also hoped to establish a disciplinary committee of prison officials, which would hear testimony on both sides, hoping that convicts might be treated more fairly when it came to lockup. Quote, I don't want some bull coming down and snatching me up like a thief in the night, said David. There have been guys locked up on what a stool pigeon says, he continued, intimating that men were being put in solitary and lockup based on little evidence. Clapp was not closed-minded about this idea. Quote, what they're asking for is a court inside the institution. I would like to give it some thought, unquote. They also complained about the solitary confinement facilities. Said David, quote, we've got a hole down there that stinks. And that's where we're going now for a good long time. At the time, said Clapp, the average term in lockup was 30 to 60 days, and the current policy for lockup was to lock men up for indeterminate terms, review the cases each week, and release those whose behavior and attitude justified it.
3: The convicts next complained about the food, saying it could be better. They also believed the prices at the commissary were exorbitant and that the inmates did not receive money for the work that they did around the prison, hence why inmates looted it during the commotion. They further complained that they did not have enough recreation or rehabilitation facilities, even asking for more softballs because they kept knocking them over the wall and the guards would not return them. Other complaints including too few visits from relatives— poor clothing, and restrictions on their correspondence.
0: If not having enough recreational facilities was bad enough, the movies, according to the inmates, were almost worse. From a Statesman article, quote, They said the films they see are 16 millimeters and old ones at that, like Hell's a Poppin, unquote. By 1958, Hell's a Poppin would have been 17 years old. That would be like showing (sighs) 2020 inmates the 2003 movie Daredevil or School of Rock. And for those who love school, I mean, school of rock is good, but like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like there, there are many movies that have been released since then. Um, And for those who don't know, 16 millimeters refers to how wide the film strip is. So the average film strip in the forties when Hell's a Poppin was made would have been 35 millimeters or larger. Even during the 1920s, 16mm was considered substandard by film professionals. 16mm film was reserved almost exclusively for home movies, even at that time. And so to think about, you are watching, I mean, basically a tiny screen of a movie that's 17 years old. Quote, the movie stink, unquote, said one inmate during the press conference. One editorial from the Idaho Daily Statesman, however, was not moved to compassion by this complaint. Quote, the prisoners are seeing old movies, they protested. So are the millions who view the television. There are many old movies that are far superior to new ones, to which I agree. Inmates of a penitentiary are fortunate that they see any movies. There is no reward for crime, unquote.
3: Clapp believed that the rebellion was so short-lived and had so few inmates involved because, quote, they felt they would have had more support from the inmate population than they received. When they didn't get support, the thing sort of collapsed, end quote. He also thought another reason it did not spread through the prison even more was that, quote, prompt arrival of so many armed police officers, end quote. David said of the riot, quote, it came off, not quite as we planned, but it came off, end quote. Clapp was surprised that the inmates had such various complaints, saying that the inmates had never complained to him before.
0: Once all was said and done, quote, all we want is a modern prison, like in California, unquote, said Gary Anspaugh. Maxwell and Clapp stated that they would interview each of the nine inmates individually, and anything in regard to those grievances would be settled then. All of them, however, would be placed in solitary confinement for their participation in these riots. Quote, there's no use beating about the bush, said Warden L.E. Clapp, These men are going to be disciplined for their action. The action they took was
3: wrong. It is because of this no nonsense attitude that Clapp and Maxwell earned praise for their containment of the riot. From the statesman, quote, In his office, Governor Robert Smiley said he was pleased that the matter was brought to such a speedy end, he said he has full confidence in Warden Clapp, Maxwell, and H. P. Fales, who constitute the board of corrections. End quote. The same editorial that had no sympathy for inmates complaining about movies lauded Warden Clapp for his extended tough attitude against crime in the state and inside the penitentiary. Warden Clapp has successfully operated the Idaho State Prison for many years, bringing order out of chaos in the process. For years, penitentiary inmates were running Boise streets at night, in some instances repeating crimes. That condition no longer exists. If stern disciplinary measures are the secret of the warden's success, there is no public complaint, End quote.
0: On September 28, 1958, the statesman asked the question of the public, quote, What is your reaction to the recent uprisings at the Idaho State Penitentiary and the convicts' claims that they are entitled to more privileges, Unquote. Here are some of the public's answers. From William P. Anthey, Yes, I do think a convict is entitled to more privileges. He's in prison because he tries to be 200% American. He has tried to follow the American ideal of getting something for nothing and has failed. Unless we change our attitude and stop gearing all of our efforts toward acquisition, we are going to have a lot of this kind of thing, which actually is a very, um, like, fascinating. He just is straight up, like, lambasting this, like, American dream ideal, getting something for nothing. It's so interesting yeah. to me that's why it's
3: one of my favorite quotes like <laughs> of this whole series because like yeah. oh, like man. he tries to it, be 200 percent american. american
0: like so i think i read that and i was like my jaw dropped and i was like this man is bold and i like it
3: leo v smith said it is my opinion those men are in prison for a good reason and should not have privileges granted free persons i back up the warden stance
0: LaDonna Lingle said, I think conditions are like what the convicts said. They really have no rights. I really don't blame them for trying to escape. There should be no solitary confinement, and they should have better food. I guess I believe in rehabilitation.
3: I feel like she just heard about what was going on at the prison. (laughs) I
0: mean, I guess they do. I don't know.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Walter Schrader said, I'm afraid I didn't read about the rioting too closely, but I believe the convicts are in the right. They should not be treated like animals in for punishment. They should be in prison for rehabilitation, not just punishment.
0: Ira Hugh said, It seems to me the penitentiary is too crowded. That could very well be the trouble. I don't think there is much room for the convicts to get proper care. However, there doesn't seem to be much we can do unless the legislature approves funds to improve prison conditions.
3: And Luther Williams said, It is my opinion that the prisoners ought to get what is coming to them. I think they are in the penitentiary for doing something wrong, and they are obliged to pay for this. If they were in the right mind... They would not be in prison.
0: Oof. If the public was pleased by how the warden handled the event, the inmates were probably less pleased as very few changes were implemented. The same disciplinary system and review committee remained intact. One big change that was discussed after the riot, though perhaps not because of the riot, was an addition of the Alcoholics Anonymous program to the prison. At a meeting of 150 delegates of AA, Mark Maxwell said that 87% of inmates drank alcohol and 17% could be considered alcoholics. He also, quote, pointed out that there is no help for the alcoholic at the state penitentiary other than what is given by the Boise AA chapters that visit the prison, unquote. By the 1960s, Alcoholics Anonymous was an important program for convicts in the penitentiary. Not much else changed in the prison, however, and Kobus and his eight fellow inmates were put in solitary confinement for very little change.
3: After the riot, overcrowding was obviously still an issue. On October 4th, the prison population reached a new all-time high at 608. In the middle of October, with numbers continually on the rise, Warden Clapp talked to members of the Ada County Agrarian Club that the biggest problem at the penitentiary was a lack of work to keep inmates busy. He said officials were, quote, seeking appropriations from the legislator to increase the farm program by adding more land and to add a minimum security program, which would enable inmates to start a 20-year program of construction that would result in a new institution. This program would come to fruition almost exactly as a new prison institution would be built by 1973-1974.
0: David Kobas' mother wrote The Warden in May 1959. "...in September 1958, I received a letter from my son saying he was in some kind of trouble and he was going to be put in lockup, as he called it, for some time. He did not know how long. Since then, the only word I've had from him was a Christmas card. Yesterday was Mother's Day, and I still have not heard from him. It has now been eight months." I realize any punishment he receive is because he asked for it, but need I, as his mother, still have to go on day after day wondering if he he is ill and can't write to me? Or is it against the rules to tell a mother when she might expect a letter? Could you tell me how much longer this punishment is going to last? At least I would know when I could write him and when he would get it to tell him I still love him."
3: Warden Clapp wrote back explaining the reason for David's punishment and stating that if David had been ill, Warden Clapp certainly would have alerted her. He continues, Just how long your son will be confined with the loss of all privileges I cannot say at this time. I can tell you that it is now his duty and problem to convince the authorities he can have his privileges restored to him and that he can adjust himself to live by the laws of society and the regulations of the penitentiary. It will probably be necessary for him to serve at least one year before having his privileges restored to him, end quote. David was put in Siberia from September 20, 1958 until December 16, 1958, serving four months for inciting the riot. He was then given a change in punishment, put in a lesser detention ward for nearly a year, from December 1958 to November 1959. He was then briefly put in a cell on death row, quote, to isolate him from the others in detention as they were bugging him, end quote. From January 19, 1960 to March 16, 1961, David was put in segregation in Number 2 House. On his release from isolation, he was given work detail in the greenhouse, and he was paroled a year later, having served satisfactorily in his job. Overall, David Cobus served two and a half years in some kind of punishment for his leadership in the riot.
0: If you remember from the beginning of the story of the riot, Gilbert Talley was the guard who David Cobus first approached about the fight in the loafing room and thus was held captive during the riot. We first introduced Gilbert Talley during the 1935 riot, where we promised to finish his story after his last involvement. Well, here we are.
3: After the 1935 riot, Talley served as captain of the yard under wardens Ira Taylor, William, Jess, Rex Smith, and Pearl Meredith before becoming warden himself from August 15, 1940 to August 31, 1941. During the war years, according to an Idaho's Daily Statesman article written after his retirement, he served on the Portland Police Force in the barracks area of the Swan Island Navy Yard. Sadly, in June 1944, Tally's wife, Viola, passed away in Portland. The funeral was held in Boise, where she spent most of her life, and she is buried in Morris Hill Cemetery.
0: In early 1945, Talley was considered for being brought back as warden at the Idaho State Penitentiary, but the Board of Prison Commissioners pointed out that he had not submitted an application. Only a few months later, Talley had returned to Boise, where he was able to take up his old job as Captain of the Yard under Warden Lou Clapp. Nearing his late 50s, he became known as, quote, the old man with the inmates, while he called them knotheads, a moniker that many claimed only Tally could get away with. Talley himself said, quote, if I didn't call them knotheads, they'd think I was sick,
3: unquote. Here's a little oral history clip from Harley Carringer taken at the Idaho Department of Corrections on April 9th, 1982. You'll hear a lot more about Harley next season.
4: This time, that was it. That was it. The captain would always meets you. He called everybody not hit. Old Cap and that But he was a good old captain. He's fair. And he treated you right. Nowadays, no penitentiaries. You, you don't know where you stand. From one day to the next, you just got to go from one day to the next. When you first come in this prison here, a convict could tell you the day you went home. That's how good their work was. But not now. They might tell you you're going home next year, and it might be 10 years for you. That's
0: what are here. <laughs> <laughs> on On December 29, 1956, he married Dora Rogers, a Boise widow.
3: Gilbert Talley survived two more riots during his second tenure at the penitentiary. An excerpt from the Daily Statesman announcing his retirement said, quote, Once a fella stood over me with an axe raised, You better do a good job, I told him. I don't want to be crippled. Nothing happened, end quote. After 27 years of fine work at the Idaho State Penitentiary, he retired in June 1960 at the age of 78 years old. He
0: was 80 years old serving at the prison. That is crazy.
3: In the Statesman article detailing his retirement, he had a few pieces of advice. First, to stay out of prison. He recommended, quote, get a job, go to work, and quit fooling around, end quote. He was then asked what the key was to being a successful prison guard. Quote, "Be fair, be human along with being a guard, and strike a balance between the two."." End quote. Gilbert Harvey Talley died on March 8, 1968, having outlived his first wife, his son, who had died of cancer in 1966, and his second wife, Dora, who passed away in September 1967. He was 87 years old.:
0: Man, what a life. So, what can we learn from this short-lived riot? First, if you're planning a riot that is dependent on the participation of more than 10 people, you should probably ensure that those others are willing to participate with you. If you don't, it will probably be dead in the water, lasting less than an hour. Riots lasting less than an hour often aren't as capable of as much change as you might hope.
3: Second, when you get 600 men in one place as small as the site at the Idaho State Penitentiary, problems are bound to come, as we'll see in future riots. In our modern society, we need to be willing to understand that prison overcrowding will never lead to a change in societal crime. It will only lead to more issues that will then feed even more problems both within the prison and outside of it. As one statesman reader suggested, we may need to take a look at our current laws to determine if there are crimes that should be reconsidered.
0: Lastly, this is perhaps not something we learn, but something we need to remember. Though they perhaps should have limited access to many of the luxuries we enjoy on the outside, timely entertainment, recreation, and human interaction is something that we all deserve, not as law-abiding citizens, but as human beings who have basic needs, as I think we have all learned in our self-imposed COVID isolations. Does that justify taking 10 guards hostage? No. As David Kobus said, quote, we're human beings, not
3: animals, unquote.
0: That's it. That was 58
3: another episode another riot and I feel like I learned a ton on this one great work Sky. Oh
0: well thank you I, I the, the more that we get into like we're starting to get into a lot of like political stuff in terms of sort of the brief overview um, and we are getting sort of more and more involved in terms of the riots but this one and 66 have been really fun for me to research and learn stuff about and um, you know i think i think Coba said it best like we are human beings we're not animals and uh you yeah. know we all deserve uh we all have basic needs that need to be met whether we are in jail or not
3: all right well oh man i think we should all strive to be 200 percent americans <laughs> 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 not really
0: you know, trying to get uh, something but... for nothing
3: right <laughs> Oh, my gosh. All right, Skye. Well, we'll see you sometime soon. Yeah. (laughs) All right, everybody. Do your own time. And
0: do your own number. Peace. Bye. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see the mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, which we love to get, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.
1: Well, that? he was about six, one, two, or three, long in there somewhere. Almost bald, but gray-headed. And he called a spade a spade, and that was it. His word was it. We didn't have money to buy them underwear. That was our argument.
4: Could they have them if their family sent them? If their Didn't that cause a problem for those that didn't have yeah, families? Yeah, sure did. Do they ever gain anything by the riots? No. No, they really don't.